0: In today's scripture readings, we hear some hard things. In Jeremiah 18, we hear the Lord say to Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that he is a potter, but a potter shaping evil against them and devising a plan against them, urging them to amend their ways. In Philemon, we hear the Apostle Paul urging Philemon to take back a slave named Onesimus. In Luke 14, we hear Jesus say, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Hearing those readings about sin and punishment, about slavery, about hating life and family... And the cost of discipleship, we may wish that we had slept in even later this morning. In fact, trying in fact hearing and trying to live by God's word is part of the cost of discipleship. It doesn't always sound or feel good. Today's readings raise enough questions to address in 20 sermons, let alone one. And so, I won't raise them all, I won't be able to answer all of them completely, but I'll take a few minutes to address a few that occurred to me. My first question was, does God really plot evil against us, as Jeremiah 18 verse 11 suggests? And my first answer to that is, well, why do you want to know? Is it to reassure yourself that you can just go on sinning without upsetting God too much? If that's the case, then that attitude is more of a pressing problem than the question. If we assume that because we are Christians that God always agrees with us, that God is always going to go along with what we want, and never disciplines us or corrects us, that is a mistake. God is shaping us into the likeness of Christ like a potter with clay. And thank God, he is not finished with us yet. All of us are works in progress. And sometimes that process of shaping hurts very much. And yet, God can turn even what is evil to his good purposes. Second question. Does God change his mind? That's certainly implied in this reading from Jeremiah and happens elsewhere in the Bible. And to that I'll just say, God changing his mind does not mean that God is inconsistent or self-contradicting any more than it does when we change our minds. Third question is, are we to understand from the gospel lesson that God would really have us hate our families and our life? No. How about that for a concise answer? It does mean that being a follower of Jesus is costly and sometimes painful. In the passage we just heard about from the gospel lesson, Jesus uses the word hate there as an emphatic form, which in Greek is called hyperbole. One way we know that Jesus, one way we know that he's using hyperbole is that Jesus urges his followers time and time again not to hate one another or their families, but to love one another. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Jesus' use of hyperbole for emphasis, you can do that by listening online to the sermon from March twenty second, two 2015, in which I addressed that at greater length. A fourth question. In Luke 14, verse 33, Jesus says, None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Be nice if that were hyperbole, wouldn't it? <clears throat> In its most basic sense, it is not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration just to make a point. Because we do need to acknowledge that all that we have is finally God's and we are but managers of it. We ourselves belong to God. Does that mean that we need to give up all our possessions like everything we've got on us right now? Not necessarily. They are good gifts from God. But if we are holding tightly to those possessions instead of to God as if they were God, then yes, we do need to give them up to free ourselves from slavery and idolatry to those things by giving them away, by separating ourselves from them, and with a strong accountability mechanism to keep us honest. None of those are complete answers to the questions I've raised, and of course there are many more questions to be asked. But with those four at least minimally addressed, I'd like to move on now and spend the rest of the sermon talking a little bit about Paul's remarkable letter to Philemon, which we heard nearly all of a few minutes ago when Miranda read it. Paul's letter to Philemon is one of the few New Testament letters addressed primarily to one particular person, although other recipients are named, about whom, that is Philemon, we know relatively little. Hearing it may therefore make us feel even more like we're reading someone else's mail, of little consequence to us, even more than we may feel when reading other epistles. That the letter to Philemon is not in the Bible by accident. It's not simply a bookmark between the letter to Titus and that to the Hebrews. God speaks to us through Paul's letter today. And with a little application, we can discern how. Let's take a few minutes then to reacquaint ourselves with Paul's letter to Philemon, its context and its message, both at the time that it was written and today. Paul is writing from prison to a man named Philemon about one of Philemon's slaves called Onesimus, which happens to mean useful. So when Paul talks about him being useful to Philemon again, it's a play on his name. It's a little bit like being named Handy. Paul seems to have met Onesimus, that is, Mr. Useful, in prison. We don't know a lot about Onesimus either, but both he and Archippus, to whom Paul also addresses this letter, are mentioned in the letter to the Colossians, which suggests that Philemon lived in or near the city of Colossae in the Roman province of Asia, in what is today Western Turkey, where he apparently was a Christian house church leader. But as Paul writes to Philemon, Onesimus is not there in Colossae with Philemon. He is instead with Paul, who is in prison in an unspecified location. And presumably, Onesimus is absent without leave from Philemon's household. And Paul is writing a letter on behalf of Onesimus, the slave, to bring back with him when he returns to Philemon, his master. In the letter, Paul urges Philemon not to punish Onesimus for his absence or whatever else he had done to end up in prison, but instead to welcome him back, in the words of verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. In a nutshell, Paul writes to Philemon, take him back, Philemon, as a brother in Christ, not because I'm telling you to, but freely as a generous example of what it means to live as fellow members of God's family, the new identity that God has given us in Jesus Christ that transcends work or social station. The epistle to Philemon is about what it means to live in that new reality that Jesus established in God's fallen creation as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's a new identity that we receive and a different way of life. On this Labor Day weekend, it's important for all of us who are prone to seek our sense of worth in our work to hear Paul's words to Philemon about Onesimus. They are good news that Onesimus is more than a slave. He's more than what he does for Philemon. In Philemon 15 and 16, Paul writes, Perhaps this is the reason that he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Baptized into Jesus Christ, Onesimus had a new identity, and so did Philemon. And Onesimus's identity was more than his job, more than his station of servitude. And so is our baptismal identity that God gives to us. It is entirely appropriate for us to seek and appreciate success in our employment, assuming that our work is honest and worthwhile. But it is neither appropriate nor accurate to make our work our identity and our reason for being. In baptism, God reminds us that we are much more than what we can do. We are his beloved children. Unworthy and plagued by sin, certainly but claimed by God as his own, and therefore endowed with dignity beyond what any action of ours can confer. In his letter to Philemon, the apostle Paul stakes his reputation on that claim. People have sometimes used Philemon as evidence that slavery is compatible with Christianity. But Paul's letter is no justification for slavery. It's simply addressing a situation that really exists. It simply illustrates that God calls us citizens of his kingdom even while we live in a world that is plagued by slavery, sin, and death. It's not condoning it. It's simply speaking to reality. God would have us be in the world and yet not of the world. Being in the world means being willing to live in highly imperfect circumstances and to get our hands dirty trying to improve them. God has already done what no amount of effort on our part could have. He has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. And now God sends us out as his ambassadors of reconciliation with Jesus, Paul, and a great cloud of witnesses as our examples and cheering us on. Paul's letter to Philemon was not a merely academic discussion. With respect to God, Paul was once in the position of Onesimus himself. That is, a fugitive and a slave to sin estranged from his Lord. And so would we all be had not God intervened to adopt us into his family through holy baptism and make us his own. That conversion of our identity gives us hope for the future. God can change our circumstances. However bad things may seem at the moment, God can change them in ways that we cannot yet imagine. We can pray then for good things with that in mind, knowing that God may have a plan for us that we don't even recognize or see at the moment, and therefore we can live hopefully even as we recognize the fallenness of God's creation. For that good news, and for a God who has made us His children, when we were unworthy even to be counted among His slaves, thanks be to God.